Laura. In the world of Hollywood, movies get greenlit and redlit. They get remade and rebooted. But we are the ideal. I'm Sam Gash, and you are listening to Ideal Remake. Thank you for listening to Ideal Remake. We take movies that either have been, will be, or should be remade and talk about what the ideal version of that remake would be. And out of all the podcasts and all the towns and all the world, Chris Lord is a guest on mine. So, Chris, is Casablanca a movie that has been, will be, or should be remade? Um, it's a movie that should never, ever, ever be remade, uh, which is why I picked it. Because it is my favorite movie of all time, and I wanted a challenge. Wrong. The answer is, it has been remade. Uh, that's true. It has technically been remade. Um, I think Barbarella is considered a loose remake of Casablanca. What? Yeah. No, no, wait. Is it Barbarella or Stripperella? I think it might be Stripperella. It was like, there was some random... Barbarella, <laughs> Queen of the Galaxy? <laughs> Maybe it's Stripperella then. I would have to double check this. But, like, there is some movie that I was, like, shocked to realize, like, what I was reading the description is basically, like, a... It's just a ripoff, essentially. Oh, I'm sure there are numerous, numerous ripoffs of Casablanca. But there actually have been two other things on IMDb that have the name Casablanca. Okay. One of them was a prequel series that they tried to make, and then then another one in 1955 was supposed to be a remake, but also serious. So it's been remade as a TV show, but a TV show in 1955. And weirdly, if you look it up on IMDb Pro, it doesn't have an end year, so it was never canceled. Oh, it's just still going. It's still going. <laughs> it's still going. <laughs> but yeah, so largely I agree with you. This is, it, it's one of those like kind of like held up as a, this is a nearly perfect movie. It's very, very good. Mm-hmm. Probably shouldn't ever be remade for a lot of the reasons we're going to talk about. Lots of reasons. But it, it it is also a brand name, which means that it will be. Yes. And also, uh, I'm pretty sure Warner Brothers still owns it, because it was a Warner Brothers film back in the day. And if there's any studio we can bank on making really poor decisions, it's Warner Brothers. I mean, they got to fade that algae <laughs> rhythm. So, oh my god. Oh, I... <laughs> I'm sad to say that I know what that reference is because I did watch Space Jam, A New Legacy, which is maybe one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life. It is extremely bad. Yes. Um, And it has influenced choices I've made on this show. I bet it has. But it's one of those things where it's like, it's not public domain. Like, you still have to go to HBO Max in order to watch this movie. Yeah. Which means that it's owned by them, so... It, no, it absolutely is. I, I'm curious, of all the, the influences head of the show, are you no longer casting LeBron James in things? No, uh, I was doing some animated thing, and we actively chose not to cast Zendaya, because she's she's very fun, but she's expressive with her face, and she can't do that if she's a voice actress. Oh, oh that's because right. Because yeah, she was Lola Bunny, and she was Lola not a particularly Bunny. good Lola Bunny. That's true, she's not particularly good. I mean, no one in that was particularly good. I will say, there's like... What, like a five-minute sequence where they're going, like, rounding up all the different Warner Brothers IP characters? That was fun. That's, like, that like five-minute sequence, if they had just made, like, a series of ads for HBO Max built around that premise, people would be like, oh my god, this is way better than it should be for a bunch of ads. Instead, they made a, a two-hour-long advertisement for HBO well, Max. that's exactly the problem. The original Space Jam is super fun, but it's based off of an ad... For Nikes, it's based oh, off of an ad Michael Jordan did right. with Bugs Bunny for shoes. That's right. And so that's what's missing. That's the heart of the sequel that they're missing, is it's, they missed not... the original ad with which to base the movie on. Yeah. Without it, 
Space Jam Legacy is just hollow. What's, what's the point? Because it doesn't have. I will say, nope. it, and it has one other good, one good cameo joke that I shan't spoil for anyone who hasn't seen it, but also don't watch it because it's terrible. But I think you know yeah. which, which joke I'm referring to. So. Probably. Yeah. Anywho. Yeah. Anywho. <laughs> as we talk about Space Jam for the purposes of talking about Casablanca. Of course. So this is your favorite movie. It is my favorite movie. Yes. Do you remember the first time you saw it? I do, in fact. Um, I saw it in high school, and we watched it in my AP European history class. This was, like, I think post-AP test. We basically just, my my teacher was amazing. (laughs) We just watched a bunch of movies that had, like, some historical reference. Now, the funny thing is, I didn't actually watch it in class because I was home recovering from, uh, like, a really serious injury, a car accident. And so I, like, I basically, like, watched it with my friends at home as if I had, you know, to make up for not being able to watch it in school. And I don't remember it, like, I remember really enjoying it at the time, but I couldn't tell you what about it just, like, really stuck with me then. But it's one of those movies that I watched, like, wow, I really, really enjoy this. And then every time I've gone back to it since then, I've just loved it more and more. And now it just holds a place up there with, like, it's, like, Clue is probably my second favorite movie of all time with just, like, the tiniest, tiniest little margin underneath it. Yeah. Um... But it's just, to me, this thing, this movie, like, does everything. And I'm going to, I'm just going to use these really hyperbolic terms so no, you don't fully agree with. I'm just going to say everything for the sake of simplicity. But, like, (laughs) it does everything kind of, like, perfectly. I think the the acting is incredible all the way through. I think the writing is incredibly sharp. It is also unexpectedly very, very funny in a way that's very much in my wheelhouse of humor, which is kind of, like, a little bit dry and cynical and sarcastic and a lot of it's built around wordplay, which I, I absolutely love. And this is a, a, a small little note, if you'll allow me a, a digression here, already very early on in the show. Um, <laughs> but there's this amazing term my friends and I discovered called adioneta, which is very hard to describe because it's really hard to find examples. But this movie is like one of the best examples of it. And so it's essentially what it means, like, a person says something in a room and to two different people it has two different meanings. So the, the example is when uh, the chief of police, when um, Captain Raynaud is like sitting at the table and he refers to Major Strasser as one of the people who gives a third right the reputation has today, to the Major, it's considered a compliment, or he reads it as a compliment, but Rick knows that it's actually meant as an insult. So the same phrase has two different interpretations to different people. Got it. And that is adioneta, and it's like this really specific uh, like grammatical device that has like no other examples except for this movie that I could think of off the top of my head. So it, it's it's a it's a good trick in comedies. Yeah. It's like one of those things where um you're having a conversation with the person on the phone and the person who's there in reality. So you're saying something in the phone that answers the person it is both an answer to the person in reality and the person on the phone who are both having different conversations with you. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just it's it's really it's really funny. It has great comedic timing all the way through. I think it's genuinely like really really heartfelt. Like the story is simultaneously like heartbreaking, but also um, like heartwarming yeah. and like inspiring. Uh, the music is fantastic all the way through. The cinematography, the set design. Like if if I had like total fuck you money, I would rebuild like the cafe as like an apartment. <laughs> I just think it's such a great design everywhere. Um, I just, mean, you get to have your apartment upstairs, and then you just get to have that hangout area. Uh, I, yeah, down below. I get to have like a classy bar. I, I would, you know, I would love to live above a classy bar. So it just it just checks every box. It's something that I really love about 
film. And I think it's so much of an era, too, for better and definitely worse at times. And that's part of the reason I love it as well. And that's why I feel like it's it would be so hard to go and try and make it now because it is so much of this this bygone era of like classic Hollywood and, and thus the challenge of trying to yeah. remake it. I don't necessarily agree that like bygone era films are as difficult to make, although this one certainly is the other couple I've talked about on the show so far. And I know there's going to be another one I'm going to be remaking this summer. So, okay, fair enough. All the bygone era ones are difficult <laughs> to remake. It, but think, it, it uh, also has the problem of when this movie came out, it's not a period piece. It is strictly contemporary. Yeah. And that makes this so much harder. It, it really does. Yeah. I mean, the movie came out in 42. It's set in 1941. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's like it's, you yeah. know, about living during World War Two while World War Two is going on. Yeah. Which is wild. Which is really crazy. Yeah. And it, it, it's part of what makes it so good because it gets to it, it's it's uh, it's literally a pop culture movie, but feels timeless. It does, yeah. I, I think it really much has a timeless feel. And, I, and I've read, you know, I, I have a book that basically talks about the history of the film itself and includes a copy of the, the, the script, which looks nothing like a modern script. It's basically just like a no. play. Um, and I've, you know, read books about Humphrey Bogart and, like, gotten a sense of how this film kind of, it was, a, you know, a splash when it came out and, you know, it won some Oscars, got a lot of attention, but it kind of disappeared. And then it sort of had, like, a not quite ironic, but, like, almost like a, um, like a cult revival uh, around college campuses, I think in like the seventies or the eighties or something like that, and then it kind of like really kind of brought this back, this resurgence. Like how, uh, um, like it's like how it's a wonderful life had that kind of thing where it's a wonderful life didn't do very well, and then like they just kept showing it around Christmas, and then people just like kind of associated it with the season. I think I think it's more like this isn't like an odd comparison, but almost like a like a Rocky Horror Picture Show sort of thing of like people oh. like they started like playing it again. And everyone's like, oh, like this is like this amazing, very singular cult film. And I think it, it kind of brought it back into prestige because obviously it was a prestige That's film fair. when it came out. Although the idea of like a prestige film didn't exist in the 1940s, they just made sure. films. They were just happy that the sound worked. That's exactly it. Yeah. So it's this really, and I, I would not do it justice trying to go into like the whole history of like why it still has some cultural significance. All I can say is that for me, it, it, it resonates. And you know, I always say that I am absolutely like a middle-aged man trapped in a you know a, the body of a person in his early 30s. Uh, and so it's no surprise people like ask me what my favorite movie is. They say this, like it just fits. It's just like, oh right, he's an yeah, old man there and it loves this old Humphrey movie. Humphrey Bogart playing someone who's supposed to be twenty eight years old. Oh my god, yeah. There's there's that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the first time I ever saw this movie, I was on an airplane. Okay. And I remember enjoying it, being like, oh, that was really good. I I liked it. And mm-hmm. I remember, and that's just kind of like the opinion of it that I've had since then. Yeah. Because the second time I've ever saw this movie was for this podcast. So oh, there you go. Okay. We had to delay this recording a little bit. So I, I watched it. Oh, I, what I ended up doing was my birthday. We're recording this on uh, June 17th. We watched this on June 6th, which was my birthday. Mm-hmm. So this was the birthday movie I watched. Yeah. Uh, and I had uh, my friend Zach and Caitlin over both former guests of Ideal Remake. Mm-hmm. Caitlin had never seen the movie before. I'd only ever seen it on a plane. And Zach is an actor who's like, you're going to get to see some really cool things tonight. And all three of us liked it for different reasons. Mm-hmm. I think Caitlin liked it the least of all of us. Okay, yeah. Um, but it was still just like, there are just some moments that just land and hit so well. And there's just, there's there's some uh, hell of a good job acting. Yeah, there, there, there's some really incredible acting all the way through, some really incredible emotional moments. It's also a movie that, 
people don't realize how culturally saturated it has become until they actually see it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the, the whole end speech is oftentimes misquoted in various places, but you don't necessarily realize it's from Casablanca until so you sit down and watch Casablanca. You're like, oh, like, mm-hmm. the Hill of Beans, here's looking at you, kid. You know, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon for the rest of your life. Like, all those things happen in the span of, like, a minute. And you're like, oh, these different references pop up all the time in all these different places everywhere. Yeah. It's interesting. It's cool in that way. Yeah. Um, and this is one of the movies that gets added to the list of there are no bad Sams. <laughs> there are only good Sams. If this is a piece of popular culture and media and there's a character named Sam, they're good. He's you like him. He's a great Sam. He's an amazing yeah. Sam. There's uh, there's some thing that went around, uh, like one of those like in, uh, social media posts where it's like, everyone needs a Sam. And it was like Frodo and this mm-hmm. and that and the other thing. And this, this is like... There's the moment where um, where Rick is, like, fleeing France, mm-hmm. and he's, like, drunk, waiting for Ilsa to show up, and Sam's like, no, we gotta, like, drags him onto the train. We gotta yeah. go. Yeah. No, Sam's always looking out for him, and, and Rick's yeah. always looking out for Sam. It's it's a genuine, like, really fantastic until, friendship. Until we get to Act 3 of the movie, where stuff's going, going on, and everyone thinks that Rick's about to flee, and Sam's not in the movie. But the important thing is, is that Rick would remember him. <laughs> hey, he does... He does look out for Sam, though, because when he sells the club, because we're going full spoilers here and for this 75, 80-year-old film. I mean, we're going to do a quick rundown of the plot just right. for the people who haven't but seen it. But when, when he sells the bar to Senior Ferrari, he gives Sam a massive pay raise because he goes from Good. getting like 10% of the bar to like 25% of the bar. And as Ferrari he puts it, it he, he's worth it. And he is. Yeah. So... I mean, everybody I mean, comes to Rick's, but they go there for Sam. Yeah. So I mean, like, there's even that thing, like, at the beginning of the movie when uh, Mr. Ferrari comes to try and, and buy Sam away. Mm-hmm. And Sam's like, I know you could pay me two or three times as much money, but I like working here. Yeah. I don't even have, you know, time to spend the money that you make. So I'm just going to yeah. stay here. Yeah. See? And I, I think part of the reason I love this movie so much, too, is, like, there's this this like veneer of class over everything, but the reality is like this world is actually like really intense and scary, and the stakes are super high for everyone, and like death is literally around the corner. I mean, like one of the first things that happens in the film is like a guy has the wrong papers and runs off and gets shot by you know the the police. Like it's this really intense world where everyone is also like dressed up and drinking and putting on this like this air of um, like class and like pretense and it's i don't know it's it's a very everyone the way everyone talks to this is also very like sophisticated and, and polished and cordial while they're also moral enemies and for good reason like that is no longer a thing but i feel like it, it works well in this very old-fashioned environment that like, as you said was not a period piece it was you know the reality of the time well it also helps because it's they're not doing kind of like the 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 Hollywoodized version of speaking. Like, it still feels like very casual speech. Yeah. Like, outside of, here's looking at you, kid, it's pretty much all things people would still say. Yeah. Like, it still feels like modern dialect. It, it like, it, this is maybe a slightly weird comparison, but for me, to some degrees, it almost feels like a precursor to Sorkin, just in terms of, like, the the dialogue, I, I agree with you, is, like, mostly there, but I find, like, the, the wit involved. Like, no one is this witty all the time. Yeah. And, like, everyone in this film is, like, super sharp and witty. Um, that's part of the reason I love it, is I would love to live in a world where everyone's that witty. So, <laughs> I mean, you stopped hanging out at uh, comedy clubs. 
Yeah, because I was not the witty one, and that that just sucks. You're just there to watch and just enjoy and just like <laughs> absorb it all around you. So it sounds like what you actually want is you don't want to be surrounded by witty people. You want to be able to have that kind of quick response and lightning fast reflexes of just always having the exact right thing to say. Yes, well, other people do the same thing too. I, I, okay. I, yeah, exactly. I, I want to be even, even keel, even level of wittiness. Yes, I want to be witty amongst other witty people. You know? Got it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and then you have a syndrome situation of once everyone's witty, no one is. Tragic, but true. <laughs> Um, cool. So let's do a quick rundown of the plot of like just kind of general bare bones for yeah. people who haven't seen it because it, it's a well enough known movie. Mm-hmm. But basically, World War II. This is set in Casablanca in Morocco, and it is kind of a no man's land. Like it's kind of free France, but there's like French soldiers and German soldiers, and no one's really sure who controls everything. Yeah, it, it's it's the last stop on like the refuge refugee trail out of europe into the united states exactly mm-hmm. and it's this weird like yeah it's a good way of putting it. it's like it's almost kind of lawless but it's not but obviously mm-hmm. it's all very very corrupt at the same time but yeah it's it's you're not in it's not occupied by anybody but everyone is there. but the occup it's not occupied but the occupying force is still there exactly yeah it's not occupied in the way that you know france was at the time but right yeah there are still germans and french there so yeah and so um, the the movie takes place, and they we go to the American Cafe, which is run by an American guy named Rick and mm-hmm. uh, 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 Ugarte. Oh, Ugarte, yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, shows up and says, "I know you don't like me, which is why you're the only person I can trust to have these two tickets out of here." And then, of course, he gets taken away and shot. So Rick has these two tickets, and then on that day. And it, it turns out it's like, ah, he's this rotten, uh, uh, hard guy with a heart of gold because he gets these two kids' money to also make their own escape. But um, and it happens to be on that day in that bar, this, uh, this beautiful uh, blonde woman, Ilsa Lund, walks in and it's like, oh my God, she's the woman I was in love with and then fled France and she, I left her behind. Oh my God. I'm I'm very much enjoying your very simplified version of how the story is told. I'm 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 trying to move, uh, and then it's like oh, but, but she's here, and it turns out she's here with some guy. Ah, oh, gross! We're not getting back together. Oh man, my heart! I'm gonna be a dick about it because I'm Humphrey Bogart, and I only have one move, and that move is be a dick. And uh, it turns out that like she's fleeing with Victor Laszlo. Victor Laszlo, yes, her Victor Laszlo, Czechoslovakian was, husband. Yes, uh, and as someone who is myself of Czechoslovakian descent, I uh, appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And basically, he is a big um, writer for the resistance and is really good at like rallying the people and getting them together to fight against fascism. So, of course, the Germans in town say he's got to die and can't get out of town. And so it's all about, will uh, Humphrey Bogart help them? Will they escape? Will Victor Laszlo be killed and then Humphrey Bogart and Ilsa can be together? Who knows? It's a movie. Yeah. Yes, that, that, that is a, a nice, simplistic way of structuring the entire story. I did my best. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, the, the thing that I think makes this movie in particular so difficult to make is the fact that at the time of its release, it was contemporary. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if we're talking about a remake, the first question we need to ask is, when can we set this? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's that's the big challenge is not only that it was a contemporary it was made, but also, you know, it's it's iconic. And then we talked about this a little bit, too, 
um, that the the cast is like made up of iconic actors in iconic roles, right? So it's like, yeah. how do you find someone who can, you know, be a contemporary to Humphrey Bogart? How do you find a contemporary for Peter Laurie, who plays Udate, who's, you know, like the classic, oh my God, I'm so yeah. creepy. Like, like, you know, someone who's been parodied in so many different places, you know, Claude Rains as well, like these sort of like iconic actors. I mean, Peter Laurie was the easy one. That was just an easy one for one. But everyone else, I tried very hard to like kind of capture the essence of the character. Mm-hmm. But then try very hard not to get someone who doesn't look like them. Okay, that that is probably a smart way to go. So, I, if if we're gonna die, like as part of like when it's set, I feel like that's when I kind of reveal like I I've, I spend a lot of time to figure like how do you do this? Or, like yeah, of how do you how do you make something so iconic and find a reason for it to exist? Um, right. And I was trying to think of like what other examples I know of that, that that's been done really well. And the the one that I landed on was the. HBO Watchmen adaptation from Damon okay, Lindelof, which didn't actually remake Watchmen. It just told another story set in this iconic world, and it obviously recasts mm-hmm. some of those characters, but it's like a different context. And so, like, it sort of spiritually and thematically was resonant with the original text, but wasn't just another version of it. And so, the the kind of the version that ultimately I landed on that I think would work and I'm very curious to hear your take, is that I wouldn't actually do a full remake of Casablanca. I would do a anthology series set in the world around these characters and all the stuff that's happening in this time, in this place. Um, and I would call it what the play upon which Casablanca is based off is called, which is Everybody Comes to Rick. So the whole idea is that it's centered around Rick's, and you have a lot of the same characters, including Rick Blaine and, and Louis Renault and everybody, but you're focusing on like the individual stories of all the people that are going through all this rather than doing the exact beat for beat story plot remake so i'm i'm curious what your angle in on it was slash your thoughts on that idea so i thought about that but obviously i've done this podcasting enough times that i kind of try and stick very hard to the rules of it has to be a movie Mm because otherwise it's like any one of these things that we're talking about now, you're always going to spend want to spend more time with the characters. But in yeah. order to tell a concise story and recapture what the original was and actually make a true remake, I do kind of try and always lead us towards movie. Didn't we do a series once? We did. It was one of those episodes from the first few things, but we ended up doing a series of movies. Because when we talked about Superman... No, I thought... We talked it, about... Um... What was one of the ones that I did? I thought we ended up doing one of the other ones as a series. We did James Bond. We did Superman. We did League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I thought that one ended up being a series. Mm-mm. Oh. No, it wasn't. Oh. Um, the one that felt most like a series is because we pitched a five-movie arc for Superman. No, no, it wasn't Superman. I was thinking of it. was one of the other ones. But clearly I'm mistaken. So. But, regardless... Because, so the thing that really struck me about Casablanca is the time capsule nature of it. Because I've really been focused on the fact that it is a movie about that moment. Mm-hmm. And what is happening in the world right then, taking a stance on it and saying, here is kind of an idealized story of what kind of people can and potentially could be. Of here's the way people behave, but here's kind of the way when push comes to shove, the way they should behave. Okay. And the obvious thing that you could do if you were remaking it now is you could certainly make it about the Ukrainian conflict, but I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Because that feels 
that also feels vaguely exploitative. It's not a world war and um, it's a little bit different. So part of me wanted to take it and do um, kind of like what Watchmen does a little bit, even though that's this isn't how Watchmen operates because I think that Watchmen is kind of set in the 90s. I don't specifically remember. or But I was kind of doing like a day after tomorrow kind of thing where mm-hmm. it is a little bit kind of seeing how the way the world could potentially be headed uh, and kind of like what people might be forced to do. So instead of, instead of doing like the, what the movie originally did of setting it in 1941, but the film came out in 1942, we're currently in 2022, set it in a hypothetical 2025. Oh, okay. Interesting. And kind of playing with it that way. And that's kind of the, the angle I'd, kind of considered for myself but that's as far as i got because i knew we would be have to be having this conversation okay well certainly if like if the idea of setting it in that world at that time and doing it more like an anthology series at the window we're gonna have to do something kind of more different like what you suggested well we we literally have opposite ideas so we have to figure out the version that makes the most sense to us collectively as a team right okay it it doesn't matter if i'm not going to dictate anything we're here to talk about the movie okay i mean i so, I mean, I, I do see what you're saying, like, in terms of trying to find, like, parameters, trying to make it like a, you know, um, like a remake of a film. I guess, like, to my mind, it's really hard to do a version of this set any time other than exactly during this moment during World War II, just because, like, the so many elements of the plot just wouldn't really work anymore. Just, like, certainly the idea of, like, you know, these letters of transit, right? Which, even at the time, are, like, a little bit like hyperbolic MacGuffins, just like, oh, these really convenient things that sure. let anyone to pass at any sort of time. And and also, like, this sort of, you know, refugee trail coming out of World War II. Obviously, like, we're living in a world now where we, there's numerous pathways of, you know, refugee transit happening all over the world, sadly. Um, and I feel like it's, it's of this very specific time where the, like, the heroes and the villains are much more obviously binary in a way that doesn't really yeah. play anymore. Like, I, I feel like I'm sure... I potentially disagree with that. So, basically what's happening in the world of Casablanca is that a world that everyone was comfortable in and felt like they knew is collapsing around them or mm-hmm. has collapsed around them. And now they're trying to have to get to the only places in the world where potentially they can make sense or try to fight for a, a better world. So if we're setting this in 2025, theoretically, this could be about the collapse of the United States and American fascism kind of taking hold and kind Mm -hmm. of seeing the expanse of that. And instead of people going through Casablanca in order to escape to the United States, they're getting to Casablanca to escape from the United States. And they're going in the other direction, potentially to a a more civil-minded Europe, although obviously the whole world is kind of sliding a little bit more to the right in a way that's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Um, but that's the sort of thing where it's like, that kind of thing, it could happen here. It could happen again. And so it's about fighting against the people who are advocating for fascism uh, and protecting the people. Because obviously, I th- so I think just fundamentally there are people who are fighters and are good at it and are able to like rile people up and fight for a cause and then there are people like me who uh will throw a thumbs up and that actually push comes to shove i'm very flight and freeze and and i can't i'm not a good fighter Mm -hmm. but if 
push came to shove and some and I had an opportunity to pretend like protect some like someone who is a fundamental fighter for the cause and get them someplace safely I'd like to think that I would rise to the occasion and, and help them on their way but I don't know mm-hmm. and I feel like that's what this movie would be about of Rick is running the American cafe uh, or the Americana cafe in Casablanca and or cafe America uh, cafe American yes and it's someone who was a fighter for gay rights, for abortion, for um, the trans community, and just someone who was very advocate and vocal and fought for those different things in the United States. But as the United States kind of like collapses in and on itself in terms of fascism is getting out, but because of the internet and a global community is going to be able to still do that work, but from someplace safe. Czechoslovakia doesn't exist anymore, but somewhere else say weirdly germany yeah in a in an ultimate reversal of fortune and like and so that kind of story of it's the exact same story of someone fighting for the people needing to find a new way to do it and it's just these awful people trying to shut this person down and how all of a sudden these people who think that there's no hope left realizing that they actually have an opportunity to do something to help the world in protecting this one person who will be an inspiration for so many others. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That was kind of the thought I had in mind of singular story. Here's this moment. The moment is you have the opportunity. Here is your chance. Are you going to help people or are you going to continue to think that there's no hope left in the world? Yeah. Because that's what Rick is. He's just there. He doesn't think there's hope left in the world. He's just kind of doing the best he can running his thing. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, Ilsa really believes in this guy. And I believe in what Ilsa believes in. Mm-hmm. I will also fight for Victor too. Okay. I that's definitely an interesting way of of, of taking it. And it, I think you did a, a good job summarizing like how you could make a, a modernly thematic th- modern, thematically resonant version of that. <laughs> um, um now The question is, is it Casablanca though? And that's that's the question because if it's not, and you're the person who would know better than I would, then we have to figure out something else. I mean, it's it's yes, I, I would say like a lot of what comprises like the the heart of Casablanca is what you've just laid out. Essentially, is that sort of like um, it's this midpoint between two worlds, um, kind of like geographically, politically, socially, all these different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it. It's all about this, you know, Rick who is disinterested in any sort of cause, who has had his heart broken and who has become cynical and just wants to drift through and doesn't want to talk politics and doesn't want to deal with with trouble and just kind of wants to be, you know, left alone and to, to run a saloon. And it's it's basically him having to overcome his own indifference. You know, like you, you referenced earlier that he helps this this uh couple get money to get out of the city which is something that he would not have done at the beginning of the movie but when Elsa shows up and Victor's in tow and he's reminded of the cause he used to fight for then it's the first time he actually does something that benefits somebody else and like stick his neck out for somebody and so what you just described I would say like thematically resonates with all those ideas so but 
I would still rather do my version, but I'll I know. it's it's kind of a cop out. So I, I I think it's more interesting and more challenging to try and do something a little bit. Uh, well, how can we take different? the thing that I just pitched and make it more like your version? Like, how can we take the things that I talked about and make it something that you also would be proud of? Like, what are the things that what are the pieces of Casablanca the original that you because the the original will still exist, but what are the pieces that you really feel like need to exist in a Casablanca remake? I guess what I wanted to explore was the when I went to rewatch it with this specific idea. What I was captured by was how the characters feel so deep and like they have their own little world going on. We just get little glimpses mm-hmm. of them all the way throughout it, right? You know, so I, I think a good example is like the character of uh, Avon, who's in love with Rick, and he doesn't want anything to do with her. And Sasha, the bartender, is always flirting with her, and then she shows up later on with like a German soldier, and like you know, this character who, you know, on the surface is just sort of this like this young girl who's just trying to get, you know, a, a attention and you know, kind of like an easy pathway forward from someone who's like you know a more established older male figure, and. You know, she gets kind of her like moment of redemption a little bit when she when she ends up joining in the singing of La Marseille. That's a character that I feel like, oh, there's could be so much more to her. Like, what? It, why is she? How did she end up here? Why is she trying to do the things she does? You know, it's like, what about her made her feel compelled to you know stand up and sing La Marseille and you know and to cry and be so emotionally involved? Like, you know, or. You know, just even the the random like couples on the street who are going through and trying to make their way through, and you know, are 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 prey to the the pickpockets and the vultures, and it's this place that so many people have descended to for like we don't know what their reason for being there is, but they're just trying to make the best of being there. And you know, thinking about one of the the modern things to me that relates the most is this idea of you know again this this refugee trail of people trying to escape from this horror to what they hope will be a, a better place. And that, especially during World War II, that came in a lot of different versions. There's a lot of different stories that are involved in terms of people trying to get out of there or just trying to make their way through life at the time. And so I kind of want to just expand out that world a little bit and figure out, like, you know, what is it like to be part of the, you know, like with Berger and the resistance movements that's down there? Or, you know, I think Carl is such an interesting character because, he, you know, he's you know, kind of like one of the bar managers, but, you know, someone refers to him as, like, the professor, and he's part of this underground movement as well. And you get the sense that there's so many people there that are have a life that's much more complicated than the overly simplistic version that we're seeing for, for moments on screen. And so I wanted to, like, widen that out and see kind of what their story was a little bit. This is a bit of a tangent, but, of course, it is. We're talking. When was the last time you watched the movie Spirited Away? I don't think I've ever seen Spirited Away, actually. Oh, all right. Um, have you seen any uh, Miyazaki movies? Yes, I saw. Uh, I saw Princess Mononoke at the um, Hollywood Forever Cemetery like a couple years ago. But that that is just like a, a an Uber that has passed me by That's somehow. Fair. So good movie night for a future uh, hangout because I realized yeah. that you and I have only ever hung out in the context of podcasting, and at some point, you know, we should just hang. Yeah, just be a, just be friends or yeah. whatever. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm talking crazy. But right. basically what ends up happening in in Spirited Away is that this main character of Chihiro kind of like drifts through this, this pre-existing world. Mm-hmm. And kind of her presence changes the world kind of like, it protagonists the world around her a little bit. Okay. And just like she passes through, she enters, she does things, and then she leaves. 
but you can t- tell that just like her being there and, and doing things like changes the nature of the way these things are going to be going forward. Mm-hmm. Characters are different permanently because of her being there. And in fact, the way everyone's going to be interacting with each other is going to permanently be different from that point forward. And I feel like the movie as like on the script is kind of setting up that Victor Laszlo is like that for the world. Yeah. But for the movie, it's Ilsa. Ilsa drifts in. And as soon as she walks in out of all the bars and all the world and whatever, she walks in and all of a sudden it's exactly like you said, they're different. Ilsa being there reminds Rick of who he used to be. And now all of a sudden he's willing to help this couple. Mm -hmm. And part of why I really like uh, Miyazaki movies is because they hint at a larger world and they let you know that larger worlds exist, but this is the story we're telling today. Okay. And this story might interact and brush up against these larger worlds because every single character is their own world. But right now, they only exist for this fleeting moment. Like, I don't necessarily need to know the whole story behind Ugarte to know... How do you pronounce his name? Um, yeah, Ugate. Yeah, it's, Ugate. I'm probably even pronouncing it wrong, so... You're, you have better understanding than I do. I'll assume Ugate. <laughs> yeah. Like, Signor Ferrari has his own story, but I don't necessarily need to know what their background is to know, that, to know how they're affecting this story. Mm-hmm. And even though Ugate is not changed by Ilsa ferrari kind of is he ends up getting the thing he always wanted which is you know a friend named sam which is what we all (laughs) need and i think part of what makes movies like casablanca work and kind of let and and part of what gives them this staying power and this wonderfulness is that it gives us it gives us room to imagine of we don't even know what's like we don't even know really what the ending is we can just hypothesize of Renault and Rick this is going to be the start of a beautiful friendship but we don't know what that's going to mean mm-hmm. we don't we it's like all these little people are affected in this story in this couple of days that happen together and we get to kind of like wonder and talk about it like okay well what do you think happened what what is what what is their story that happens now and so while we certainly could do that in uh, a TV show or a limited series it's we're going to end up answering all those questions and people don't get to wonder anymore because we get to tell them. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the question is, is is there something specific you want to tell them that is important for this character? Of This character needs to tell people that they're going to be doing this thing? Or are you yourself more interested in being like, and then they do something and, and wondering what it is? I was approaching more from the perspective of like I don't think this movie should ever be remade. So if I were of to course. try, if I were to try and like figure out a way to actually make it feel justified to revisit this world, that to me made the most amount of sense. But we're yeah, talking yeah, about a hypothetical situation where it's like, okay, we're going to do this just for you know, yeah, of course, for the so fun of it. Which, which story are you most interested in in talking about more? Whose whose little world do you want to explore further? I mean. I, Kind of all of them, but let, let's just okay, like great. For, let's start. Let's start with one of them. I think, for the sake of like a more interesting conversation that gives us more flexibility and options, I think we're better served like actually doing kind of your version of like okay, let's try and find a way to make this make sense in a modern context rather than doing like the the limited series. So I, I 
I, I know, but I'm trying to pull in more things from yours, because obviously you had the idea of this miniseries. And well, theoretically, I, I like, have some, some casting that'll still be applicable, so. Oh, I think all your casting will still be applicable. But, yeah. Um, I, I'm more interested in talking about, like, okay, well, I want to see if we can, if you'd thought about, for this larger miniseries, like, if there, what other extra arcs you wanted to put in, and who's, like, what else did you want to happen in the miniseries? I mean, I'm gonna be honest. I, I, I want to try to like fold that into what. No, we're doing. like I, I, I hadn't thought that deeply. I was more like, okay, ah, I, fa- okay. I found Got like okay. I found the angle in on this um, that to me would make sense for actually justifying a a new version of it. Got so. it. So I'm probing it something that uh, doesn't doesn't need to be probed right now. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm overly probing, and yes. I apologize. No, no, it's all good. So yeah, so let's let's. <laughs> but I'm intrigued by your your version here of it, sort of being like the yeah like uh, the reverse version of it. So, so when you think about Casablanca and outside of like famous quotes, what are the famous like scenes and vignettes that you like kind of think of like, you can't have, like, these are the moments that you're like, this is fucking Casablanca. Like, oh my God, this is it. This is the moment. There are some specific moments. I think just broadly speaking though, tone. Okay. It's a big part of it. I think the movie has a very, very specific tone where it's like, Again, it's it's a little bit of mystery. It's a little bit of, like, dark humor. There's this sort of, like, flippant attitude amongst a lot of the characters all the way through. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... The stakes, as I said earlier, are incredibly high, but everyone is, you know, kind of playing it a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I mean, you know, uh, Rick and Louis literally have, like, a bet going about the fate of, you know, a really important person in the world. Like, will Laszlo get out of there or not? They have a bet going on it. Like, it's that sort of just, like... Flippancies. I think that tone is really important in terms of like <clears throat> specific moments that I think really encapsulate Casablanca. Obviously, like that that final goodbye sequence, you know, the big reveal that oh, Rick's going to stay behind and he's sending Ilza off with with Laszlo because they, you know, he, Laszlo needs her and Rick no longer needs her, sort of thing. Like, obviously, that moment's really important. I, I think the other for me, kind of like defining moment of the film and I, I made reference to it earlier is uh the La Marseille sequence. So, you know, at this point the sort of like the, the, the machinations was everyone has been going on for a little bit, but the the Germans show up, you know, as Carl puts it, you know, he gave them the best table because being German they would have taken it themselves, sort of thing. And they're sitting there and, <laughs> and you know, and they're being loud and boisterous and they're you know, they're singing like a, a German rally song and, and Laszlo hears this. Um, and refuses to accept it, and so he goes up to the band and says, "You know, play La Marseille." You know, the, I mean, it's a very on the nose song to to choose, but it, it makes sense. It's a job con- done. It's, it makes sense. It, it you know, in the context of the film, and that's also a turning point for for Rick because for someone who you know literally it says at one point earlier, like you know, you know, leave your politics at the door, he gives the band the nod, of like yes, you can go ahead and play this. He allows this to happen, um, and that sort of swell as you know. Uh, Victor and Yvonne and everyone else in the the bar start singing and drown out the Nazis. Uh, you know that that is a moment that gets me every single time I watch it. It's just really you know um, emotional and, and and inspirational. I feel like that both the the way it plays out and the ideas presented there are kind of like the defining thing. Like that's really like the big character turn in a lot of ways for Rick. If we're talking tone, would you describe this movie as a noir? Uh, not in a weird way not really like it, yeah it's this like 
it's almost like a false noir. Yeah. It's like it's I mean, setting you up and it's establishing the things of noir. It's like, oh, this is noir. You know what this is going to mean. And then yeah. it doesn't mean those things. I mean, you know, it, it's funny because it's, it is a play in, yeah. in essence. You know, I mean, almost the entire thing takes place at Rick's with the, you know, a few exceptions of scenes set out in the street or the, the final sequence um, at the airfield. But for the most part, it's kind of like all set in this one this one spot and it's funny because it, it's you know a film that has been referenced and homaged and parodied so many times but i can't think of a lot of other movies that kind of have a similar sort of like structure to it and also just in terms of like it mostly being set at this one place and it's it does kind of defy genre in a lot of ways because there's a lot of noir elements to it i mean certainly that that final sequence you know it's a in, in, the, in the fog and the overcoats and everything feels very noir and yes it's it's kind of a romance but it's also in many ways sort of an anti-romance well, um, it's also surprising because if you're going into this movie completely blind and you're kind of like seeing the way a lot of these things are getting set up and you're seeing who's getting the stre- the screen time Honestly, you're kind of expecting Laszlo to be killed, which lets Rick and Ilsa be together and escape together on the plane. Yeah. But Victor lives. And then Ilsa leaves with him. And Victor's left, not Victor, and Rick's left alone without her. And so you watch like these kinds of movies and it, it defies your expectations in that way. And like, if if this wasn't Casablanca and like, it's the the movie that everyone's talked about for 70 years, Mm -hmm. 80 years, excuse me. Yeah. Then it, like, I feel like that would be a big surprise because how often do you have this big romantic pairing, this whirlwind romance that doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's atypical in so many things that it does, Um, which, again, I think is part of the reason that I I tend to love it so much is that I know exactly what's going to happen, yet it always feels surprising when I'm watching it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of why it stood the test of time because it does these things so perfectly and beautifully that anyone else who might try it would probably get noted to death of, no, the romantic people have to end up together. What are you doing? Yeah. Victor has to break up with her. Victor has to be cheating on her with with someone else. And so she leaves him and then she goes off with Rick, which is, yeah. I'm sure, happened in 17,000 movies. Right. It, like, it, it establishes a bunch of tropes, but it also predates stereotypes and doesn't, mm-hmm fall back into those now existing stereotypes yeah yeah i don't know it's interesting and fascinating in that way Mm -hmm. but for our version i but because for our version and because of that i think that those things still play because in the 80 years hence those tropes have gotten even more codified and more set up like Mm -hmm. i was just talking about the new batman movie that came out and even though batman and Batman and Catwoman don't end up together at the end of the movie. Don't they, though? Don't they really? (laughs) And it's just kind of like one of those, like, yeah, but they'll get back together. And, like, you watch this and, no, they won't. They'll probably never see each other again. No, yeah, and that's, I think, one of the things I love about it. It's like, you know, uh, as he even puts it, like, you know, they they have Paris once again. They didn't, you know, because he was just so overcome, like, so caught up in his own heartbreak. He neglected to think about all the things that she did inspire in him and it comes back around again. So. Yeah, it's such a great line when he says, we'll always have Paris. We didn't for a while, but then you came back and now yeah. we do have it. Ah, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> like, 
friend, like everyone always focuses on we'll always have Paris, but I don't think that's the part of the line that's good. I think the part of the line that's good is the we didn't have Paris. Yeah. But then because you came back in, now all of a sudden that memory that was tainted is cleaned off and shiny and fresh and now we have that together. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, uh uh bye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as as a tangent, if you haven't seen it, you gotta go watch there's this amazing Saturday Night Live skit. Um, for a few years ago with uh, J.K. Simmons in the in the Rick role, in the, in the Rick Blaine role. Um, and then, oh my God. And it says, and he says he will never give her up. He will never let her Exactly, up. exactly, yes. And then, um, oh my God, how am I, how am I blanking on, on uh, Kate McKinnon. Um, there you go, good job. Uh, and then um, Kate McKinnon as Ilsa, and it's like, you know, outtakes from, from Casablanca. And it, it just, just watch it to see Kate McKinnon do an Ingrid Bergman impression. It's, it's, really really fucking hilarious so <laughs> that's great yeah yeah it's tough like it, it's so iconic that how do you reestablish the icon but yeah i don't know let's talk about casting okay because i feel like in, in talking about casting we'll kind of like solidify things a little bit more and like who we kind of see mm-hmm. how, how we kind of think that role should be represented okay i feel like we got to start with rick yes oh rick this is a challenge yeah. Luckily, I, I had lots of names written down, so I, I have other options to pull from here. <laughs> so I actually broke one of my own rules Okay. when coming up with my Rick, because it's someone who has been used so many times. He had been used so many times in like kind of the early days of my podcast, and then he kind of hasn't been used for like two years. Is it Idris Elba? It's not. Okay. <laughs> but it's someone who kind of like... You can see his face that he used to be someone who represented so much joy. Mm-hmm. And now it's just kind of been like beaten out of him. And now he's just like, ah, it's fine, I guess. And at the end, at the end of the day, it's someone who really represents, he's American. And he has to really represent that this is America. Mm-hmm. Donald Glover. Oh. Oh, Interesting. And he goes from someone who was super young and fun and joyful in community and to someone who, like, I mean, he's still funny in Atlanta, but also, and, like, <laughs> Childish Gambino days of, like, clearly, like, I've seen too many things. I know too much. I can't have that same sense of joy that I used to have when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I like that so. a lot, actually. So that's who I thought might be fun. Who did you have? I, I had a long, long list. Again, I, I was trying to, like, more obviously emulate sort of a, a Humphrey Bogart vibe in the in the original version that I had kind of thrown out there. Well, who did you have? For your version, like, if the series ended up getting made, who would be the person playing Humphrey Bogart? It, I, one of the things that I was kind of trying to approach when I was doing this was, you know, one of the one of the things that people recognize most about Casablanca was that at the time, especially, had a very international cast. Yeah. Um, and so as much as possible, I tried to cast actors that were reflective of um like what part of the world that original actor came from slash that character is supposed to be from so i i yep i, I did a, i did the exact same thing yeah i had a long list of names of people that i think are really great but they're more international like they weren't actually american like one of the ones that i really loved that i think he could be really good but i don't think works would be javier bardem just like again mm-hmm. he's not american but I, I think he kind of gives off that vibe a lot but knowing that i wanted to kind of go for more of an actual american feel what are we gonna go for um john bernthal I don't know who that is. Came to mind. He tends to play more kind of like supporting characters in a lot of roles. He was the Punisher on Netflix. That's kind of oh, like the, okay. the, the I know big exactly thing that he's that known for. Yeah, that he's known for. But he's been, you know, he pops up a lot of places. I think he's a really fantastic actor. I think he kind of gives off a bit of that that vibe. Like he he has, 
you know, a good sense. He has the humor and he kind of has a little bit of that kind of like spark to what you're describing with Don Glover, but it's kind of like faded and he gives off that like gruff sort of persona. So if I were trying to find yeah. kind of like a modern person who's an American actor who can kind of give off that sort of a little bit kind of gruff, passionate vibe, that's who I was going for. I think that if you were going for a one-for-one Humphrey Bogart, I think that's a great choice. Mm-hmm. Like, can kind of give up, like, because Humphrey Bogart, you know, has seen some shit. Yeah. It's just like, I, he will drink whatever he needs to to get through whatever's currently happening. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a more modern actor, like, I think the closest semi-modern we would have gotten would have been, um, I think, Harrison Forb. Harrison Ford gives us very Humphrey Bogart vibes sometimes in terms of, especially like older Harrison Ford, like just does not give a fuck about anything anymore. But yeah. wouldn't work now because he's like, he's, yeah. you know, he's far, far, even for an actor that was too old for the role originally, Harrison Ford is far too old now. Yeah, Harrison so. Ford in the 80s would have been correct. Yeah. However. Exactly. That doesn't work. So yeah, <laughs> I, I think, yeah, if I was going for like a, a modern version of the original Humphrey Bogart energy, I, I would go for John Bernthal. But I really like your, your, your casting of Donald Glover in that part. So. All right, cool. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, then, who is the Swedish woman you cast to play Ilsa? See, the thing is, I actually didn't cast Ilsa or, or Victor because they wouldn't have come through the series because it would have been kind of like that world prior to their arrival. Ah, okay. So when everyone's sad? Yeah, pretty much. But it's just like all those <laughs> like, you know, little pocket stories. And I thought like, you know, possibly also be like a semi-sequel in terms of following what happens to... Um, to Rick and Louis after the fact. I um, feel like that's the sort of thing where everyone would be like, okay, so it's like Gotham. We're not going to have Bruce Wayne. And then you cast Bruce Wayne. Oh, who's going to be playing your Joker? Oh, it's this guy. Yeah, exactly. We don't have Batman or the Joker. But anyway, so, here's Batman and the Joker. Yeah, it would not have featured Laszlo or, or Elsa at all. Um, okay, well then I will tell you about who mine are. Mm-hmm. So I went with probably the best Swedish actress who we could think of to play kind of the femme fatale, the femme not fatale. Because not yeah. fatal. Yeah, not fatal. I went with uh, Alicia Vikander. Ah, uh, she's great. Yeah. Swedish, ex machina, Tomb Raider, Danish girl. Yep. She's just great. And mm-hmm. I feel like she would be able to kind of like pull the emotions in order to do this role. And also could, if needed, find the emotions and then when the time came, turn them off in order to get the job done. No, oh, I think it's a great shot. And then you also didn't have Victor. So my Victor is actually Victoria Laszlo. Oh, okay. And I wanted someone who, in this particular situation, because we don't really... Like, Victor Laszlo is Victor Laszlo, but I wanted someone who, like, has a background of all sorts of ancestry. So, like, that way is pull, like is representative of a, a lot of different kinds of peoples and can kind of connect to a lot of different kinds of peoples. And mm-hmm. so this actress is Austrian, German, Polish, Romanian, Ukrainian... Like, all these different things. She's most well-known for Orphan Black, but is going to be our new She-Hulk, Tatiana oh, Maslany. I love some Tatiana Maslany. Yeah, she's great. And I thought uh, Alicia Vikander having to go back and forth between Donald Glover and Tatiana Maslany would be kind of like a fun... Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. So then let's talk about uh, the only character that really matters, and that is Sam. Yes. So tell me who you had for Sam. <laughs> Uh, I, I was trying to go through a lot of different options. Again, American actor was kind of like the, the big thing that I was trying to focus on. And ultimately, I went with Dulé Hill. Oh, who, I do love Dulé Hill. He is fantastic. I think probably his biggest role would have been in Psych. Yeah. As as Gus, the the, the, the begrudging hapless sidekick. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, and he he's popped up in a few other things here and there. But he, I think there's just this really fantastic sort of like radiant energy from from Sam. He he is kind of like one of the bright lights in the whole movie. He's like one of the few characters that really hasn't succumb to cynicism the way that everyone else is one could argue maybe he's like the last character that really hasn't fully can come to come to cynicism yeah and i wanted someone who just kind of had that sort of buoyant energy that could um sort of shine through a little bit and so i had a i went through a lot of different people but he was my my top choice there that's great i love it Mm -hmm. and i think i think he can play the piano right probably i mean he seems like the type of guy who could yeah, I like. I'm, I'm trying to remember because I watched a lot of Psych, and I'm trying to remember if because I, I feel like the main guy played the piano, but I don't remember if Dulé Hill ever played. the piano. I don't know if he did or not, but I, I feel like he probably could. I also consider. I'm like, sure tra- he could. Yeah, trying to cast an actual musician. Like now, it's better to cast an actor, and they can you know figure out. From so there. But th- who, that is what I ended up doing. Is I yeah, tried to be have? like I was like trying to find black guys who can play piano or black guys who who are musicians who mm-hmm. aren't like known for being the musician. And um, I ended up casting this actor who I personally haven't seen in a lot of things, but I know is supposed to be pretty good. Um, he's in the new Station Eleven, but I cast him because he was in Mozart in the Jungle. And Mozart in the Jungle, you'd think people who are in Mozart in the Jungle would be kind of musical. Yeah. You'd think. So this actor's name is uh, Gail Garcia Bernal. Oh, uh, I do. Yes, I love Gail Garcia Bernal. Yes, so, he's a fantastic actor. I don't specifically know that he can play the piano, but I, I know, know that he does music stuff because yeah. Mozart in the jungle. <laughs> yeah. But I'm perfectly happy to go with Dulé Hill. All right. Especially because I have seen this person perform and I know that he is good. Yeah. I, I love him. He, he, every time he pops up anything, I'm like, oh, hey, it's so nice to see you there, Dulé. Yeah. We need to see more of you. Yeah. And not when I accidentally almost ran you over in Pasadena. Anyway... <laughs> Look, I almost accidentally ran over Dulé Hill. I almost got run over by, oh no, <laughs> blonde actress who was in Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip and... Uh, Jane, uh, Jane Krakowski? No, no. Uh, and she's in like a lot of the uh, American uh, horror story things. She was... Uh, the... Sarah Paulson? Yeah. Sarah Paulson almost ran oh. me over. Oh, hey! In Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, this is what happens if you live in this city. You're inevitably going to almost run over a celebrity or almost get run over by a celebrity. Correct. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, Captain Renault. Yes, so... Uh, An import- important cast a French guy. Yes, and that, that was exactly it. I was trying to find someone who, who was actually uh, French, because, you know, Claude Rains, love him though I do, is not French. He's English. <gasps> Gasp! <laughs> so... With that accent? I know. Um, so I, I went through a few options and I, I came across an actor I was like, oh boy, this is absolutely perfect casting. And I, I know I've made reference to this actor before when we were casting <clears throat> for James Bond, but the actor's name is, and, and forgive my pronunciation if it's inaccurate, um, is Saeed Tagmawi. And so he, I think most people recognize him as he was one of the members of uh, One Roman's like army battalion in the first Wonder Woman movie from 2017. Um, yep. But he is a French actor who is also North African. So, hey, actually, someone that fits the bill here very, very accurately. And he has that sort of just charm to him. Like, he just kind of, especially of him, his portrayal in Wonder Woman, like, he's just really, really charming in a way that, like, he, he has, like, a bit of a bite to him, and, like, maybe you don't entirely trust him, but you can't help but be charmed by him nonetheless. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, I was like, oh, wait. When I came across him, I'm like, oh, this is actually, like, really quite perfect. Yeah, that's 
That's a fun choice. Mm-hmm. I like it. Who'd you have? So I also haven't specifically seen a lot of this actor. Well, I I saw him in Days of Future Past. I know he's in Jurassic World, and I know he's the lead of the new, or I don't even know if it's new, within the last few years, a, a show called Lupin. It's an mm. actor named um, Omar Sy. Yes. Yeah, I know Omar Sy. Yeah. Not personally. I know who he is. Yeah. <laughs> Worth clarifying. And so uh, I, I just thought he was a, a fun choice, especially if he is the uh, French guy in Africa. So yeah. I cast a black guy. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just thought that was a fun choice. I think uh, Saeed Tagmawi, who I definitely did not spell his name correctly, but uh, I have it now. I, yes. I have it up. Okay, yeah, I can send it to you. So I mean, he's the elder in John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. Oh, that's right. He's in John Wick Chapter 3 as well. Yeah. Yeah. He's in uh, the Professionals TV show. Like, he's done a bunch of stuff, and I think Saeed Tagmawi is a, is a better choice. I like Omar Sy. I, th- I think Omar Sy is fun. I thought about him as well, too. Yeah, I like Omar Sy a lot, actually. I, I would love to see him pop up more stuff. So now we have to talk about Sajarman. Yes. <clears throat> so you went first for the last one, so I'll, went first for, I'll go first for this one. Because I didn't know who our bad guy was going to specifically be, I wanted to cast an actor who was versatile enough that no matter what our bad guy was, this guy could do it. Mm-hmm. I don't know that he's specifically German, but I did do this casting specifically because I knew you would approve. Because this gentleman has been in The Devil Wears Prada, Captain America, Hunger Games. It's Stanley Tucci. And who better to play miscellaneous villain of which we are unsure yep. than Stanley Tucci? You know, I can't argue with that. I, Stanley Tucci, the Tucci, as I love to call him. Um, <laughs> and he definitely appreciates. I'm sure, you know, he probably would. He, I give, I get the feeling that he probably would appreciate it. Uh, is uh, one I'm, of my, I'm sure you, you would not be the only person he gets it from. Oh, 100% not. Uh, is <laughs> one of my favorite actors of all time. Yeah, so uh, it was playing to my crowd a little bit. Yep, I love it. Who did you have that you, Chris Lord, think is better than Stanley Tucci? Uh, again, a, a, not a character that I cast uh, initially because of the, the weird little tangent version that I was doing. Well, I'm, but arguably, because you said it's before uh, Ilsa and Laszlo arrive. Does um, Heinrich Strasser only arrive because Laszlo gets there? Yes. There, there aren't other Germans... I, I, mean, there, I just thought he was one of the Germans that no, was No, there, there are other Germans there, but no, like, one of the first scenes of the film is we see him get off a plane in Casablanca. He oh, arrives just, knowing that Laszlo is on his way. I didn't recognize him. Yes. Yeah, I didn't realize. Good, I, that's the sort of thing that comes from having watched this movie so many times. Yeah. Good, good old uh, Conrad Veidt, who, um, weirdly enough, his probably greatest claim to fame, other than being in this movie, is that he played a character in a movie called i believe the man who laughs but uh you have seen him before because he's essentially the character model for the joker is he really mm-hmm. that's wild i'm let me let me sure i have the um the name yes conrad Veidt, the man who laughs if you i mean you can just literally look it up yeah, but yeah. like i mean it's it's the joker like, I, I even remember when they were casting The Dark Knight way back in the day prior to Heath Ledger's casting. Um, you'd see his picture pop up sometimes just because, like... Oh, yeah, there it is. Yep. So that's uh, arguably the thing he's most famous for, even if people don't necessarily know that's who that is. So That's wild. Yes. Uh, but if I'm going to, off the top of my head, come up with a fantastic... Uh, German actor who I think could do justice to pretty much any part whatsoever. 
what the hell? I'm going to throw out uh, some Michael Fassbender, which would be a lovely thing because his wife is Alicia Vikander. So, hmm. yeah. That's very funny. Yeah. I mean, we have to do that now. <laughs> you know, also one of the greatest actors of his generation. Never hurts. I was, when you, you were talking about your potential Rick, I thought you were going to say Michael Fassbender. He was on my list. He was genuinely on my list. But again, I, I had to begrudgingly disqualify him because I was trying to, to cast per nationality. And so he had yes, to, which he of had course to, makes sense. He had to fall off the list. I, it's a long list of people that I had. So. Um, cool. So the next person I have is Signor Ferrari. Signor Ferrari, yes. So I didn't know his country of origin. I just knew that he was a larger guy wearing a fez. Yes. So um, I just pulled someone who I thought might be fun in the role. But okay. I believe I went first for the last one, so it's your turn. I had a long list of people, and then I stumbled across an actor who I had kind of forgotten because I've only seen him in one thing, which was uh, Mission Impossible Gross... Ghost Protocol. The actor's name is Anil Kapoor, and he kind of pops up in the third act of that film. Um, but from what I remember about his performance, he has that sort of like affable charm to him a little bit. It's like a little bit smarmy, but like at the same time, like you do kind of like him. Again, a, a lesser known actor, but I feel like someone who kind of embodies some of that same energy that Sidney Greenstreet had in the original. I'm looking at him now. Seems cool. I wanted someone who could kind of go back and forth between uh, being sleazy and fun mm-hmm. and has also like been in Hollywood for forever. So right. it's like you see him and you're like, all right, I, I kind of see what you're doing here, uh, Mr. Ferrari. Uh, and that's why I wanted to go with uh, a man who's had leads from Annihilation to The Martian to Doctor Strange. It's Benedict Wong. Ah, uh, that's a great choice. I love Benedict Wong. I, I would push this for Benedict Wong. In this I, no, I agree with you on this one, actually. I, I, I'm a, a huge Benedict Wong stan. Uh, happy to cast him anywhere and everywhere I possibly can, just like Marvel is doing at the moment. And every time Absolutely. it happens, I am thrilled by it. I mean, and if so. he's the new person who's in just every Marvel movie going forward, I'll be here for he, that. He's That's the new great. Nick Fury. And I'm like, this yeah. is amazing. Great. Yeah. Good. Okay. Then that brings us to, I'm going to, I already forgot the question. Senior Ugarte. Ugarte. Yes, good old Peter Laurie. Yeah, so it's my turn to go first. And I'm just right. like, there's really only one person you can cast in this role right now. Like, there's a like, there's a one for one. If Peter Laurie is so distinctive and iconic that I only had one person who I was like, yeah, it just, it just has to be Steve Buscemi. I mean, you're not wrong. Like, the face, the face is there. Yeah. 100%, yeah. Master, I, if there's one thing I need you to know... Yes. I, I had a hard time with this one as well because I was trying to... Trying cast... to not do that? Well, I mean, because you're right. Like, <laughs> I was trying to find someone who, like, had a distinctive look, but also I was trying to find someone who was, you know, uh, hopefully, like, you know, because uh, Peter Lorre was, um, like, Austria-Hungarian. So I was like, okay, it's maybe some kind of, like, generally from that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and also who, like... The, the funny thing about him is he, like is actually younger in this than you'd expect him to be. Really? Yeah, like, he's in his, uh, like, mid to late 30s in this movie. But he has a face that says, I've always been 54. I know, I know. He he really, he really, really does. So, again, when I was trying to, to cast along nationality lines, I went for, and the, the look is not there, I'll 100% give you that, but this actor, Matthias Schweighofer. Great name. Yes, great name. Uh, his... Most famous role would have been in um, 
Army of the Dead, and then he reprised an Army of Thieves. He plays the safe cracker in that movie. And he also actually directed Army of Thieves, too, which is kind of cool. But he has an energy to him that I feel like it's not necessarily like a creepy energy a little bit. But he has this sort of just like, he could be like a little bit smarmy. Um, and again, what I was trying to like cast along very specific um, like National Alliance. I think the other option that I had that I was seriously considering was Elijah Wood. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Yeah. Who, if you've ever seen uh, the first Sin City film, like, can actually do creepy really, really well. He's so creepy in that movie. Yeah. But I, I actually think uh, Matthias Schweighofer is very good a better choice like i think that's actually okay. a great choice and it's someone i've never heard of or ever cast on uh this podcast so i always hey, think there, there always we go wait more yeah. towards that he's got a great name too just i ugh. mean anyone who has an sch in their name is automatically a <laughs> uh, so, exactly it just happens so infrequently that you gotta you gotta support it See, that works. I can't really claim that everyone who's ever been titled a lord is a good person. <laughs> I think there's a long streak of bad lords in the world. Yeah, so. sorry. <laughs> Myself included on that list, obviously. Oh, of course. I yes. mean, I, I, I wouldn't deign to, to take that away from you. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, the only other person I have in terms of cast is Carl the bartender. I, I had a hard time with that one because you know, I was trying to cast someone German. I was going to leave that up to like just casting some random older German actor that we're all charmed by. But if you have a specific person, I'm lovely... I didn't cast a German, I just cast someone who I think all of us would be like, yeah, that's a fun choice. Mm -hmm. And it's someone who, like, who doesn't do as much acting anymore, but, like, you see, like, has the potential to disappear into a role. Is it, like, it's one of those things we don't always remember how truly great an actor this person is, Mm -hmm. but is fantastic. And that's Jack Black. I love it. I I love Jack Black. I love him so much. And so I just thought that'd be just, just... a little bit of stunt casting just to be like, oh, is that Jack Black? Oh, huh. okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, and he's like there to support uh, uh, Rick. Yeah, I know. I love it. So I thought that'd be fun. So did mm-hmm. you have any other actor roles that I did not, that we didn't get to? Nope. We hit okay. all of them. So then let's talk about writer and let's talk about director. Yes. I have a separate writer and director. Do you have a hyphen it? I, I, I did, but I'm going to change it. Okay. Because, again, like, I, the, the original version I had is is sort of off the table at this point now. But when I was trying to think of, like... doesn't matter. So, when I was trying to think of, like, a... This is actually a pair, a writing-directing pair who are really good um, at making things that on paper should be awful and making them really, really great. Okay. And who I know can actually handle, like, lots of different genre. And, again, if we're talking, like, an anthology series, as I originally pitched, like, you have opportunity to kind of lean into genre here and there. Um, and so I was going to go with Phil Lord and Chris Miller on the, the, the list of, like, you know, good lords that are out there. Indeed. Uh, no relation, sadly. But I don't think that really works in the version we're doing now. Yeah. So, I did not have time to think of a, a new director, but... That's all right. I but, think my director is pretty strong. Okay, but when we're talking about, like, a, a writer who I think can talk about this, because basically the, the, the version that we've now kind of gravitated towards is, um, because it has a little bit of that, like you know, five minutes in the future sort of thing has a, there's like, it's not like sci-fi necessarily, but we're talking about like a hypothetical world a little bit. And certainly like a darker hypothetical world. And you referenced the series earlier. So I'm going to go with the writer, creator, and showrunner from Station Eleven, Patrick Somerville. Okay. Who, for those of you who haven't seen Station Eleven, is incredible. It's, it's kind of a hard watch initially. Um, Because it's, 
essentially about like living through a, a pandemic not drastically dissimilar to the one that we just all have been living through for on our own for the last few years but surprisingly for a series that is playing so close to reality in terms of like what we're, we're dealing with it is actually one that um inspires a lot of like hope and positivity and if you'll allow me to be a, a little bit of a um an industry knob here for a second uh the show the <laughs> podcast that i produce we were lucky enough to have like a really long interview with him and he's just an incredibly smart insightful self-aware fascinating guy like the sort of person that i would i would trust to do like anything and if people um, wanted to basically. listen to that interview what podcast is it that you produce? Uh, that is the x-ray vision podcast at crooked media thank you thank you for uh, that natural segue into a plug yeah no worries um that, that episode is from a while ago now i want to say it was oh, April, uh, january i think even possibly um it was, it was a ways back cool but it's it's a great show he's a fantastic writer and i think he could handle the the sort of tone we're going for here of like this dark world but still finding a glimmer of hope in the whole thing so i think that is a great reason to go with him my writer um was the writer behind christopher robin and hidden figures it's she's a writer named uh, allison schroeder oh okay yeah and i thought that she'd be like able to kind of like get to the really the personal story within it all Mm -hmm. um but uh, i i think you're right that patrick somerville is is the way to go okay so since you don't have a director let me tell you about who mine is Mm -hmm. i wanted someone who again because i think at the end of the day it's about the personal story and making it very real and really getting to know these people like as they like develop this connection lose it and then develop it again of course I thought that there's this direct and while also finding those elements of fun in it and like really having a school with which to rock, but also being the director behind boyhood and the before trilogy. And I wanted to go with Richard Linklater. I I cannot argue with that. I love Richard Linklater. He's one of my all time favorite directors. The, the before trilogy, I think is an absolute masterpiece those three films um there was something coming up that said that they met 38 years ago so that do are we gonna get a fourth movie in two years we don't know honestly like it's one of those things and normally i'm always a fan of like hey like we kind of got the perfect thing don't ruin it by giving us more but every time they do a new movie it's fantastic so i'm like just keep giving yeah. us keep giving more i don't i don't i don't give a shit i mean especially like you just get to have the the two of them walking around and be like so what did you do during the yeah. pandemic and it's like oh man let me tell you yeah I mean, I, I mean, if we'll allow a tangent here on, on those movies, like, they are such a perfect encapsulation of, like, what it is to be a certain age. I actually, I need to go and rewatch um, Before Sunset, because I'm, I'm now kind of getting about the age they are in that movie. Um, but I always felt like the Before... Person s- who I think is a year younger than me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I am, I'm uh, closing in on 33 here. Um, oh, gasp. No one turned 34 two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know what? I always say that just life keeps getting better the older I get. <laughs> so. Um, I had a, to, to tangent off your tangent, I remember I was hanging out with some friends on my 33rd birthday um, last year and talking about like, oh man, getting older isn't this scary. I was like, well, yeah, but if you break your life, in a, let's assume 99 years. Mm-hmm. The first third has got to be the worst third, right? Like, it's when you're, like, figuring things out, you don't know who you are, yeah. like, puberty and all the gross stuff. Oh, worst third. 33 to 66 has got to be the best. And then 66 to 99, second best. Or potentially best, you don't know, because if, like, you really get into retirement, you have this, like, this amazing... Yeah. But, like, it... Yeah, exactly that. Like, it only gets better. So, enjoy that. No, I... I yeah, I absolutely will. But, uh... Yeah. 
Yeah, although I, I, I don't intend to live long enough to be old, so. Dark. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we have a fun mix in terms of characters. Is there anything else you wanted to say about Casablanca before I give us our rundown of cast? I, I, I am intrigued by what we've put together here in a way that I normally would not be because I am, I am so precious of this of this film in particular. So, um, yeah, it's one of those things that'll either work really well yeah. or not. Yeah. No, but I, I genuinely think there's some really, we've picked a really fantastic collection of people. Yeah. And I, I think so. it'll be, uh, it would be an interesting, assuming this happened. Uh, it, it's just an interesting, I don't know. It'll be weird. We'll find out. Yeah. Uh, but in the meantime, let's talk about, uh, Casablanca or as we'll call it, White House. What? So, well, Casa is house and Blanca is white. Oh, so, okay. That that makes sense. White house. I'm having a <laughs> I'm having a blonde moment over here. Yes, that does make sense. So, we're not going to call I was it like, white I'm sorry, house. Sorry, is this like a prequel to the White House is Down franchise? No, I'm just <laughs> translating the name of a city because I'm a monster. I like it. Uh, Rick Blaine will be played by Donald Glover. Ilsa Lund will be played by Alicia Vikander. Sam, Everyone Needs a Sam, will be Dulé Hill. Victoria Laszlo will be Tatiana Maslany. Captain Louis Renault will be Saeed Tagmawi. Sure. <laughs> uh, Major Heinrich Strasser will be Michael Fassbender. Uh, Signor Ferrari will be Benedict Wong. Ugarte will be Matthias... Schweighofer. Schweighofer. Yes. Thank you. Uh-huh. Carl will be Jack Black, and all of this will be written by Patrick Somerville and then directed by Richard Licklater. And it will take place over 17 years of filming. <laughs> <laughs> only, only Linklater could pull that off. Yeah, and that's the only reason that movie's watchable. Because yeah. it's so interesting and compelling. Should have been rewarded more. Anyway. Yes, agreed. Uh, but no, I, I am intrigued by uh, the assembly we put together here of people so yeah cool so once again for people uh listening at home tell us about uh this podcast slash podcast that you produce chris uh yes so in in previous times i've been on here i've plugged the podcast that i uh used to host called tim talk which was a breakdown of the the dc animated universe but that show has come to an end uh we made it through the entire purview of that universe, and so we are no longer making that show, partly because I also got crazy busy just producing. Um, and so, yeah, I produce two different podcasts for Crooked Media. One, as I mentioned before, is X-Ray Vision, which is a kind of deep dive on nerdy pop culture. So uh, at the time that this comes out, I think we'll still be covering Miss Marvel and potentially Obi-Wan Kenobi um, right around that mm-hmm. time. Uh, yes, and then, you know, all the big summer releases that are coming up, like Thor, we'll, we'll be covering that as well. And then the other show that I produce is called Keep It. And so that is a kind of another pop culture show, but kind of a broader pop culture show. And it's all about from a, a queer perspective. The two hosts, Ira Madison III and Louis Vertel, kind of go through every week and talk about kind of what's happening in pop culture. So, And then passing it forward, as it were, to the audience. Oh, the, the Keep It refers to the... the... No, I, I, that's not what I'm referencing. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and... It, it's just to the nat- the natural progression of uh, Gay It Forward. Oh my God! Yes. Oh, good old good old Gay It Forward. Uh, lo- long <laughs> long retired Gay It Forward. Um, yes, this is 
a, a, a much better show than that was, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, but the keep it of the name is because the final segment is, you know, they'll basically talk about something that they think is just like absolutely ridiculous. Like, oh my god, I don't want that. You can keep it, sort of thing. Very funny. Yes. Great. Yes. So it's a it's a fun show. But yeah, go uh, go check those out. So yeah. Um, cool. If you're interested in following me, I am at Sam Gash S A M G A S C H on Twitter, or you can certainly follow the podcast Ideal Remake on Twitter or Instagram. Or you can join the Dueling Genre Discord, which should be in the show notes, if you want to tell me what we did wrong. And I will not pass that on to Chris because he doesn't need that kind of stress in his life. (laughs) But one of the other things I try to do is I try to uh, talk about one of the other shows on the Dueling Genre Network each episode. And this time I'm going to be talking about Dueling Genres Tonight and Dueling Genre Verses, which are the Patreon-exclusive podcasts that Dueling Genre point, uh, puts out. Dueling Genre Tonight is uh, kind of like an entertainment news podcast where host Nick Jimenez kind of and a revolving host, I've been on it a bunch of times, talk about what's currently happening in pop culture, the new trailers and different like announcements and things that are happening in Hollywood. And Dueling Genre Versus is a rewatch podcast where different Dueling Genre hosts talk about different shows. And relevant to Chris's interest, I was just on for two episodes of Dueling Genre Versus Teen Titans. Oh, fantastic. So I had to watch, I had to, I got to watch four episodes in Teen Titans and talk about them, and it was super fun. The the and animated that, series, I take it? Oh, yeah. Okay, the, good. The, uh, the original animated series and not Teen Titans Go, which I enjoy, yeah. but it's not the same. And both of those are still better than Titans, so I just had to clarify. So Yes, correct. Yes. I, I definitely referenced your breakdown up, because I've never seen Titans, and I didn't watch Titans because you and Cam talked about how bad it was on Dim Talk. It's awful. Yeah. So... So yeah, uh, let's just say thank you, Chris, for A, encouraging me to rewatch Casablanca, which is better to watch not on a... I enjoyed it on a plane, right. but better to watch again with friends in your home on your birthday. Well, I'm, I am glad you enjoyed it. Uh, I, I mean, for me, like watching that film on my birthday would be an absolute joy, but maybe it wasn't quite the same for you. So I liked it. I had a wonderful time. I, I do appreciate you watching it. Obviously, also a happy belated birthday. Thank you. So I had empanadas and then uh, vegan gelato oh. and got to watch Casablanca with two friends. That actually does sound pretty good. It was it was a pretty amazing uh, finality. Finality. Pretty amazing finality to the birthday. <laughs> But thank you very much for being my guest once again on this. Thank you for having me, as always. It's always so much fun. You are welcome all of the times, Mm -hmm. whenever you like. Yeah. And, yeah, so we'll end the way we always end. And this is a particularly difficult one. What is your favorite quote from the movie, Casablanca? Uh, It would have to be, if you allow the, the brief context here, is when... Captain Louis Renault is being forced to shut down Ricks, and he has to come up with any excuse possible. And so he uh, he says, I am shocked, shocked to find gambling in this establishment, right as the croupier walks up and goes, here, you're winning, sir. Oh, yes, thank you. And he puts him in his jacket and walks away. <laughs>